0: No H2O. Tune in next Wednesday, two to four thirty in the PM.
1: Living Writers is next. to Oceania. However, listeners in East Asia may continue listening on the following shortwave frequencies. 6110, 7230, 9565, 9760, 15160, and 15425 kilohertz. You are WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, bringing you music from around the world. FM, Ann Arbor, radio you can sink your teeth into. Presented by WCBN FM Ann Arbor, featuring students at 826 Michigan. A trip, trip, trip to, to space. space.
0: Good afternoon, I'm T. Hetzel, You've Got Living Writers. Today on the program I'm so pleased to have Elizabeth Kostova here. Welcome Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's great. It's great to see you. Um, Elizabeth, you're on tour right now with your latest, your second novel, The Swan Thieves. And so you're you're coming into town and you're actually reading this evening at Nicola's yes. books. I think you can hear at seven PM. That's so, right. Yes. So that's out at so so everybody, if you're listening, you can turn the car towards Nicholas or um, get some get a bite to eat, and then head over there, 7 p.m., Nicholas uh, Books in Westgate Mall. Um, Elizabeth, before we go any further, I'll read your short bio from the back of the book, and then we'll fill in some pieces. Okay. That sounds great. Elizabeth Costova graduated from Yale and holds an MFA from the University of Michigan, where she won the Hopwood Award for the Novel in Progress. Well, I guess we could start there, because that novel in progress was the historian, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was, yeah.
2: And, and that was,
0: that turned in, that that was a big book.
2: Well, it was, I was really um so grateful to be at the University of Michigan while I was finishing it and to have the time and the huge encouragement and inspiration that the MFA program um offers to writers it was the first time that i had ever had time to focus just on writing work and on teaching of course too but it was um it was the first time i'd had that much time to really write and and wrestle with the book after 8 years of working on it so i i can only imagine that if i hadn't come here with that manuscript it would have taken another 10 years
0: In eight years, and so when when I was reading up on you, Elizabeth, you I think you moved from Philadelphia, where you were teaching writing there and working in the summers on the book. Is that Um, that yes? And and,
2: in fact, I worked on it year round, but I often had very little time to put into it. So sometimes I would have 10 or 20 minutes in a day, a busy day of teaching and other responsibilities. So it really was um, it was heavenly coming here to the MFA program and being able to focus on it and to focus
0: on the craft of writing. And so literally you say 10 or 20 minutes well, and, and, and you would be able to actually, because sometimes I think it takes me that long to like, like circle the table. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean,
2: but I, I found I was so busy in those years that I really, I learned to use any 10 or 20 minutes I had. I mean, it was a little bit, this is this is kind of maybe a silly-sounding analogy, but it was a little bit like carrying knitting around. You know, I could knit the body of the sweater if I kept it in my bag with me all the time. But finishing a sweater is much more complicated and putting on the sleeves and all those things. So oh, right, and, buttons that, and, and buttons and... And buttons <laughs> and collars, and that, that really took an MFA program. <laughs> but I did find that if I used every 10 or 20 minutes that I could scrape out of my very busy day during those years, um, I could get something done. And sometimes what you get done, as you know, what you get done in 20 minutes is very different from what you get done if you have two or three hours to write. But sometimes, for example, you can correct a paragraph you wrote the day before. You can do a little tiny bit of research in some book you're reading or looking through. Um, you can work on your outline. You can, there, there are little things you can do to move, move a book along every single day. But yes, it was, it was an incredible gift to be
0: able to come here and focus. Mm, mm, and the craft of writing what did you take did were there classes here because it's it's the time and the the fellowship um both camaraderie and and funding um that's so important it sounds like uh, in your experience elizabeth Ab- absolutely and-, and also the wonderful
2: faculty and the the courses i took the workshops and literature classes um i i had I mean, I, it would take me a long time to oh, describe that's all those classes, but yeah. I had fantastic workshops um, with Nicholas DelBanco and yes. Eileen Pollock and yeah. Peter Ho Davies and others. And I also had a wonderful literature class with Charles Baxter before he left. Yes,
0: friend um, of the show. All was of these
2: people. Fantastic <laughs> thing. And and I also studied history with John, Dr. John Fine here, who is a uh, world. Renowned um, historian of the medieval Balkans, and that was a great honor for me, and I learned a great deal from it. I'm I'm very very grateful to him too. So this was, I mean, it was, and and having also a, a fantastic graduate library right here for someone working on a historical novel, that was. That was immensely helpful, too, to have access to those
0: kinds of sources. I'm not sure if this is is a a myth or not, um, Elizabeth, but... um it said on Wikipedia that <laughs> I think, or was it in some other article um, that you, you were hiking in the Appalachian mountains with your husband when you suddenly had this idea of what if, um, cause your father used to tell you these, these stories of Dracula and we have to get to the swan thieves soon. Um, <laughs> so I have a transition actually, <laughs> but, um, but was that true? Were you hiking and you suddenly thought, ha, you know, this is, this is a way to tell, this is a story I want to tell and a way to tell it. Well, you, you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia,
2: as you know. Oh. <laughs> but in this case, it's true. <laughs> it's embarrassingly true. I had the idea for the historian in kind of a, a moment, a flash, um, while uh, on top of a mountain. I mean, you really can't get more cliché than that. But it, it did happen. And I think it that was partly because um, the Balkans are mountains. Balkan means mountain in, in old Turkish form. And um, and I think hiking and being up in mountains always reminds me of being in Eastern Europe when I was younger. So, um, yes, embarrassingly, that did exactly happen. (laughs) Exactly as Wikipedia reports, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It could have been in one of the other articles, actually, to be fair. Um, But so so was there a moment? um, It seems like what? Have you now? Was there a, a similar moment for your latest, your second novel? Um, not eight years, not ten years in the making. The the Swan Thieves. Um, was there a, a similar moment of were you out hiking again, Elizabeth? Is that your thing? <laughs> I wish hiking
2: did that more often, but it actually no. There with the Swan Thieves, I had no kind of dramatic moment of of um, genesis for this book. I really. I had wanted for a long time to write a book about a painter and about paintings. Oh, because, oh, why? Well, I've I've always loved art history, and I studied a lot of art history in college, and I've remained a, a, an enthusiastic spectator of paintings, And although I don't paint myself. And I knew that I wanted someday to write a novel about painters and painting and um, something to do with art history. So this book grew up gradually out of that idea.
0: And and what was it? What is it about painting that you think still intrigues you and keeps you going to either the museums or uh, I don't know the, the small galleries or? Well, I I love the visual. I love color, and I
2: love um, I love the natural world. And of course, nineteenth-century painting was very much concerned. In in well in part concerned with reproducing the natural world in different ways, but um, I also I think I have a secret envy of painters as a as a writer. I think and and you'll understand this as a writer, and I think many writers would say some form of this, that when you're a writer, you have a kind of endless tape loop of of words in your head, you, whatever you see or you experience. You write about in some way, either on the page or in your brain, and there's there's a kind of uh, disconnect. There's a kind of there's a way in which experience is channeled, sort of secondhand, into writing. Whereas I think painters experience the world, especially especially painters who are somehow representational painters, experience the world in this very visceral, direct way. So it fascinates me that there are people who look at a scene and they see and experience color so directly, or form, shape, line, texture. And I think I have a sort of secret envy of that. Probably most painters would argue no, then we reinterpret everything and we we use um, artificial media to express it and it's no different, it's not very different from writing, but but for me, it does. It does seem like this wonderfully direct way of experiencing the world. And one one thing I found curiously when I was working on the Swan Thieves, and this has lasted for me, I see the vis- the world in a different way. I see it more visually because of working on this book. And I found my. I was sort of. I found myself kind of training myself to look around more observantly, to to walk into. A room or a grove of trees and see directly, immediately, without words, color and form. And light. And 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 light, very much light. And especially since I was studying the Impressionist, light was a big part of that. And it has changed the way I look at at the world. And I don't think that I'm so much closer to understanding what it's like to be a painter, but I spend a lot of time trying to imagine that.
0: Yes, and, and the research as well. So the imagination of Of how did this character Robert Oliver come to you I knew, how did you choose him as your one of your painters?
2: I knew that I wanted to to use um i wanted to have a contemporary figure who is a painter and i wanted um I wanted to do also the literary experiment to try the experiment of having one central figure in in a book who doesn't really speak for himself and who's who kind of rises up three dimensionally out of the book through other people's voices. And I felt that this person, Robert Oliver developed in my mind in that way, that he would be this person who was very striking in himself, but not committed to expressing that to other people, but very, but charismatic for other people, so that a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to understand him, explain him, describe him although he doesn't feel the need
0: to do that for himself. And and why was it important? Uh, like, Because um, I, I noticed that and I was wondering why you made that choice or if it just felt like it was the way it had to be. Um, because why did you want other people to describe him or is it something about painters that you think that that they are wordless in some way that we writers are um, hobbled with words and so it made sense he didn't speak that you know refused to speak or tell his story I think a
2: little of all of those things I mean many painters of course are, are highly articulate and have left us great bodies of letters or journals or yeah. writings about art but i think i was picturing someone who was so kind of obsessively directly in touch with the sensual world that he would eschew words basically and 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 abandon speech and or deny the power of speech at least and and the power of writing and he he became a focus i mean he's sort of a I think he's sort of a super painter. <laughs> and the people around him feel that, too. <laughs> well,
0: well, when we come back, we'll take a short break, Elizabeth, and, and then maybe you'll read us a, a piece of the story. That would be wonderful. Um, today in the studio, Elizabeth Kostova. Um, her latest, her second novel, The Swan Thieves. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
1: This is a rebroadcast Of a classic Living Writers program with T. Hetzel interviewing Elizabeth Kostova. We invite you to join us at 8 p.m. this evening at Work Gallery on State Street for a live broadcast of Living Writers. If you hear events announced within this show, uh, they've occurred in the past. Once again, join us this evening at 8 p.m. at Work Gallery on State Street, State and North University, for a live Living Writers Program featuring T. Hetzel and Naomi Nye uh, with live music by WCBN Student Musicians.
0: If you're just joining us today, Elizabeth Kostova and her book, The Swan Thieves. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Brian Delaney um, in the engineering booth, and Elizabeth, we've been hearing music from the, the French Impressionist musicians, right? That's been our... We didn't have the one song that I wish we did have um, the by, by Franck, um, but uh, would you mention it because um, it's... The w- Franck Violin <laughs> Sonata, yeah, that's it
2: a beautiful piece and it's a piece that it's a piece that um the narrator of my new novel the Swan Thieves is obsessed with and he he carries it around with him he plays it in his car and i chose that piece partly because it it's if it, it's a wonderful piece to listen to with all the lights out because it's just uh, it's a very um Emotional, rich, deep peace, without being histrionic in any way, it's just a wonderful sweep of emotion and this character, at least at the beginning of the book, has his emotional life very well ordered and under control,
0: even though he's a psychiatrist well probably or probably maybe because. partly
2: because he is and and um and he is a person with a lot of depth of feeling and a lot of compassion for other people. But this Frank Violin Sonata is one of his outlets, I think.
0: So if only we had that. But go and get it if you can. And, and listen to and, it in yeah. the dark, yeah. <laughs> or while you're reading the book. Or while you're reading the book, yeah. Um, Elizabeth, will you tell us a, a little bit about The Swan Thieves, and then maybe we can hear a bit.
2: Well, it's the story of Andrew Marlowe, this psychiatrist in Washington D.C. in 1999. He's 52 when the book opens, and he has a, a great dedication to his profession. And he's also an avid and talented amateur painter. And one day, a friend of his, also a psychiatrist, gives him the case of his career. And the case of his career is Robert Oliver, a, a really a genius painter. A, a dedicated, obsessed, um, career, a successful career painter and painting instructor who has just been arrested for attempting to assault a 19th century canvas in the National Gallery of Art in Washington. With a knife. With a knife. With a knife. Security is much tighter there these days, I guess. <laughs> but this, this was a while ago. 99. 99. It's changed. And, um... Andrew Marlowe sets about trying to help Robert Oliver, who's agitated, depressed, but also silent. He refuses to speak. And because of that, Marlowe finds himself going beyond the bounds of his own profession and sometimes his own ethical rules for his life, sometimes his own instincts to try to find out who Robert Oliver is. And he in the process he begins interviewing the women Robert Oliver's been very close to and hearing about Robert Oliver through their stories and also he becomes intrigued with a package of old letters Robert Oliver keeps with him all the time and those letters lead him lead Marlowe as they have Robert into a tragedy that is part is at the heart of the rise of French Impressionist painting. So part of the book is set in our era in the United States and often in museums in big cities and, um, and in Marlowe's life. And part of it is set from very early on in the book in France of the 1870s and 1880s. And it, it traces lives that had become as important to Robert Oliver as his own. And I'd love to read you just um, the very beginning of Chapter 3, which is when Marlowe first meets Robert Oliver. And I was very inspired in this book um, by—influenced by the work of Joseph Conrad and particularly Lord Jim and um, Marlowe says at the beginning of the book that he has renamed everybody in the book, and we learn later that Lord Jim is one of his favorite books, so this is why he gives himself this name, The Observer of, of uh, a Vivid Man. So um, you'll hear a big piece of theft here, <laughs> or a tribute. <coughs> tribute. Chapter 3, Marlowe. He stood by the window of his new room, looking out of it, hands dangling at his sides. He turned as I came in. My new patient was an inch or two over six feet, powerfully built, and when he faced you head-on, he stooped a little, like a charging bull. His arms and shoulders were full of barely restrained strength, his expression dogged, self-assertive. His skin was lined, tanned, his hair was almost black and very thick, touched with silver, breaking in waves off his head, and it stood out farther on one side than the other, as if he rumpled it often. He was dressed in baggy pants of olive corduroy, a yellow cotton shirt, and a corduroy jacket with patches on the elbows. He wore heavy brown leather shoes. Robert's clothes were stained with oil paint, smudges of alizarin, cerulean, yellow ochre, colors vivid against that determined drabness. He had paint under his fingernails. He stood restlessly, shifting from foot to foot or crossing his arms, exposing the elbow patches. Two different women later told me that Robert Oliver was the most graceful man they had ever met, which makes me wonder what women notice that I don't. On the windowsill behind him lay a packet of fragile-looking papers. I thought these must be the old letters John Garcia had referred to. As I came toward him, Robert glanced directly at me. This was not the last time I was to feel that we were in the ring together, and his eyes were momentarily bright and expressive, a deep gold green, and rather bloodshot. Then his face closed angrily. He turned his head away. I introduced myself and offered my hand.
0: How are you feeling today, Mr. Oliver? Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, is this... um? Do you think this is a curiosity of yours uh, with the the, the history? Because you you named like art history as a passion of yours, and 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 of course the historian, <laughs> like this this element, this historical element. Um, do you foresee that it's something like a way that your writer's mind is is working to span centuries and to to always include how the past is is somehow pressing in on the present or
2: that is something that interests me hugely, and I think it is a way of thinking because when I've, I as long as I can remember, I've had a sense of history and everything—the the history in each of us in our, in our historical cultural heritages. Um, I see. What do you mean wherever. by that
0: exactly? What? Well, what is... well,
2: I think each of us is a living, walking piece of history. We bear in us everything that our our particular ancestors um were and did and and we also are part of a larger human history.
0: So even DNA memory or something that the the body knows from
2: places well, like I, maybe
0: we weren't even Well, I don't I don't
2: know um I don't know if I I don't think I think directly about that. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I that's don't know going very much far. about <laughs> it. I don't I don't know much about that that theory honestly, but but I think that each of us um encapsulates those things somehow and I also see all around us in every piece of architecture and every material and all of material culture I mean everything to me feels connected with some kind of of legacy, some kind of heritage, some kind of pattern, some kind of um, you know some kind of historical symbolism and that that's just sort of a way of thinking, and I'm not very in, much interested in writing the kind of historical novel in which you find yourself in the first page in 1776, and you stay there and um, for the whole book, and you you visit that world completely, and that is that is brilliantly done um, often, and I admire writers who who can do that well. But what really interests me is the way we as as modern people are influenced by history in its many, many, many forms and what it means to us, why we struggle with it, why we forget it, why we remember it, why it, it haunts us. Those are the things that I find interesting, that interaction between past and present.
0: Yes. Cause for your, your character, Robert, that you were just reading us a um, the the section about Elizabeth, he's um, almost more convinced, or um, living with in a way, this woman who's been gone for for years. She um, would you say her name Beatrice? Like would you say it in the um, French pronunciation? Yes, yeah, her her name
2: is Beatrice de Clairval, okay. and she's a French a French impressionist painter, younger than the the a little bit younger than the original impressionist painters and the original six and um but aware of their work influenced by them admiring them and she is as you say she becomes more real to robert oliver although she's been dead for um 80 or 90 years she becomes more real to him than even the people around him i mean he's in a in a sense he's a case of someone driven literally driven mad by history
0: and and it's an obsession, and it's almost as if he's. So it's love too. Does it begin as love? I don't. I don't know. It's a, it's very interesting because there is many different pairings also throughout the novel, um, some that parallel each other. Um, I don't. Yeah, do novel, you want to talk about well, obsession? Uh,
2: obsession. <laughs> love. <laughs> the, the floor no- is yours. <laughs> um, those are big topics. Oh. the The novel does is about obsession, and it does contain it well it has six main characters and it contains um, several love stories and some of them span a tremendous amount of time either either an age gap between people living people or the or it's the in Robert Oliver's case the love of the living for the dead in a very strange way and I won't give away too much of that because that that's um, at the heart of the story but I I wanted to convey somehow the way art and, for me, painting in particular, transports us into another time. And, I mean, I think one of the extraordinary things about looking at a painting, especially a painting that has been around for a while, is that it's like looking into a window, looking through a window into history, whatever the subject matter is. it's You, you look at a painting and you see... Uh, perhaps the work of a perhaps long dead hand on the canvas, and yet it's still somehow alive in the way books are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the the um, really compelling things about, about the word and written language, that it can outlive all of us and yet continue to communicate to mm-hmm. future generations. And paintings do the same thing. And I also wanted to convey the way people can fall in love with each other through art, through a a sort of shared love or shared obsession or shared medium, so there are a lot of scenes in this book in which people um are literally painting together, they're standing together in a landscape and painting and helping one another with their canvases or commenting on one on an- one another's work or just enjoying the companionship of mm-hmm. of work the um, coast
0: of Normandy or the mm-hmm. the coast of Maine or the coast of Maine
2: yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot of, uh, of parallel stories in this book which I, I think we
0: also probably shouldn't give away okay okay I all will follow your lead on that <laughs> definitely Elizabeth with with Beatrice did you have um, maybe when we come back we'll take a short break maybe we can talk about the component because uh, a lot of what drives you is the, the curiosity and the research it seems like but then the imagination because Beatrice is not um, she she seems like she has a place in history, but it's the history of Elizabeth Kostova. It's not the history of the French Impressionists, right?
2: So maybe yeah, she's, can... she is an invented character.
0: So we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Elizabeth Kostova is here. Her latest, The Swan Thieves, will be back.
1: Listening to a rebroadcast on Living Writers. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. at Work Gallery on State Street for a live presentation of Living Writers, featuring T. Hetzel interviewing Naomi Shihab Nye.
0: from that peaceful interlude, I'm T. Hetzel, you've got living writers. Today, Elizabeth Kostova, and she is here, her novel, The Swan Thieves. Um, we had a chance to hear a little bit about it before, um, a little bit from it, um, and now we're talking about um, some of the characters that go go through this, spanning the time, and, and the importance of, um, I love the idea of making sure that you're blending the, the modern and the present with the past, uh, I love that Elizabeth. So, so Beatrice, going back to our um, our, our heroine from the past, who who um, seemed to be a brave young woman of her time, uh, and painting, and very talented. Um, I I was I thought she was I thought she might have been someone you know you based her on someone who was from history. Um can you tell us a little bit about the research involved in The Swan Thieves and how um you use that to create to to imagine your your story?
2: Well, there are some
0: real impressionist painters,
2: I mean some painters who really lived <laughs> who kind of walk on and off um at the the margins of this novel but I and and they include Sisley and Monet um, Edouard Manet and Berthe Morisot. Uh, Manet wasn't really quite an impressionist painter but he influenced them hugely and um they're they all make little they make cameo appearances but I I there's so much scholarship on the the real impressionists that I didn't want to take that on in this novel, and I also didn't want to be constrained by their real lives, and I wanted this to be a novel. Um, although it's meticulously researched, it it's really truly about characters' internal lives, um, rather than, in in a sense, rather than about art history in a technical way, and. I did a lot of research to make sure that everything that Beatrice de Clerval and her um, companion, her friend Olivier Vigneault, an older painter in the story, everything they um, work on, experience, use as painting technique, um, that all those things were in the realm of possibility. and, and Probability that they that they would be they arguably could have worked in these ways and in these places and with these techniques, so it is carefully
0: researched. But and the salon, like you would yes, you would they enter go to a painting, yes, to the Paris yes. Salon,
2: and and that process I researched that process carefully as well, and um, so in the book you you visit the the salon, the the great annual exhibition in in Paris. Um, uh, and you, you see them um, experiencing this huge spectacle of entertainment that people in Paris went to by the tens of thousands. And, um, and so all of that is, is, is carefully researched, but I wanted them to be fictional because I wanted to have some freedom with the facts of their lives as well
0: cause that's 'cause that's how you're creating the story that's weaving in like the the genius the artist that lives today and his obsession and um
2: yes and he he of course is a fictional painter as well but but i interviewed i was very very fortunate with this book um i know several painters well and people who who paint either as a as a career or as a very strong vocation or and they they were very generous about letting me interview them, pester them, you know, ask them questions about how they worked, um, and and also kind of let me in on their their techniques and their the, the long series of decisions a painter makes in painting anything. And I also um, got to watch some studio classes at a very serious art leak where I could see how an instructor worked with studio assignments, exercises, and how these these working painters um, responded to them. because, as you know, quite a bit of the book is is about learning and teaching and mentorship in in painting. And so I wanted to make sure I had those things right too. So, yes, the the contemporary, painters um, also their lives are also based on a lot of research but I, I really wanted this to be a book about people's um, people's internal lives people's feelings about the artwork they did um, people's reaction to paintings from the past and I think in that way it's it's um, in spite of all the research it is more kind of general story or universal story it's it's a story yes about obsession about love
0: universal um gifts and complaints yes, yes. <laughs> um and so y- you had mentioned elizabeth too that this this book um when we were off uh taking a short break that this book is very um, when your method of writing this book, and, and I think you started to touch on it then, because well, you're imagining these characters, whereas the historian had a very, um, maybe you had the plot um, that you were working within uh, already. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the experience of writing The Swan Thieves, how your writing method was different?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, it surprised me how, how different it it was from one book to another with the historian i was doing a lot of solving of logical puzzles because i i had this mystery at the heart of it and there is there is a mystery in the swan thieves too um but with the historian i was really working out how a lot of different pieces of real history could fit together Mm -hmm. to make this plot and about halfway through i i Worked out an outline that went almost to really through the end of the novel, plotting a lot of those details, and and that was very helpful because I had I did have to work through this kind of puzzle, although it was a deeply felt book for me. I still think about those characters, and they were very real to me while I was writing it. Um, but with the Swan Thieves, I actually was heavily influenced in in the process of writing the, the Swan Thieves by one of my MFA classmates, Karen Upton who's a marvelous fiction writer and she uh, I went I went by to see her one day while we were students together and she um, she had been writing and I asked her what she was working on and and um, she was working on a novel at that point and she said um, she told me she'd been working on it and I said, "Oh, what chapter are you on?" And she said, "I don't know." And I was completely surprised by that. I actually um, I had not, Understood that you were allowed to do that, and <laughs> and I was, and I began to ask her about her process, and she explained it to me, and I went on to use it in the Swan thieves and and that's a process of knowing the the general trajectory of a story, having sort of general plot in mind or an arc of a story, but writing whatever material. Is seems compelling or, or hot at that moment in your mind and uh, for that session or over a period of weeks. But but writing whatever seems urgent and real and, and then going back later and piecing it together so that it makes the right kind of chronology. And sometimes as I edited, of course, I had to build bridges um, to link scenes together or I had to reorder things so that they really worked for me but it's a wonderful way to write a book that has a strong psychological component or a strong um component of of people's emotional lives because it really focuses in this very intimate way on on characters and their interaction and and on the act of imagination and that was a, a powerful method for me for this book and I would I would never have dared to do something so disorderly
1: <laughs> while
2: I was while I was writing the historian or in any of the work <laughs> I did before this, but it somehow was just right as a method. I spent over a year editing and reordering and sort of rebuilding, stitching together the swan thieves after I'd written all the initial material. So it is a very long process to to put um, scenes together in that way.
0: And when when did you give? Um the the manuscript to the publisher um elizabeth because because i was able to read from a galley like over christmas the the swan thieves um but there were some changes um in in the final in the hardcover book um so what was that like was was there a sense of um I don't know. Maybe a pressure of sorts that was maybe a, a good pressure. Like, come on, Elizabeth, we want this this second novel. Um, and and did that drive the writing of it in some ways, or the, your your, or yeah, when, when well, and what's it, it was, like to give a manuscript up and then think there's still some stitching to be done or some pieces that I I know I'm not. Well, I think
2: r- I think every with. writer sees things here she wants to change after giving up a manuscript at any stage i mean there's that wonderful um that wonderful story about legend um I, but I, I don't doubt it about raymond carver and how whenever he received the first printed copy of his work he would go through and correct it with a red pen and then he felt better and could put it on the shelf and, and red that, pen. Was, that was raymond carver he yeah. was you know it's hard to imagine raymond carver correcting his own you know beautifully spare yeah. perfect prose
0: <laughs> how could there be a useless how could there word be a red pen <laughs> yeah. you know
2: how would, why would you need a red pen at that point but but i think that's a that's a great story to keep in mind um but i i had never written for a deadline before and i wrote this except some short work i mean i wrote the swan thieves under contract so i i had four years to write it and um that And I did have the pressure of finishing it at a particular time, which I didn't have with my first novel, as you can tell, because it took so long. So that was a good that was a good driving force. but we also brought out the galley pretty early, so there were still things I wanted to very much wanted to polish and do and and tighten up for the final the final um, printed book.
0: And so you so you let it go. Um, But then and you tell them, though, there's there's things like you're in communication with them saying that there's going to be quite a few changes. Absolutely.
2: I mean, that's that's why the galley is also called an uncorrected proof, because so much correcting goes on afterward.
0: Was that the case with the historian, too, then that you had? It was. It was,
2: although I had worked on it for 10 years and had, you know, I'd polished it on my own time. So it was almost to the point where I wanted it to be already in the galley stage. And this one was much more of a process even after that.
0: Well, well, after The Swan Thieves, then, Elizabeth, are you, then, does it mean that you're on contract for another book? So again, that's a renewed sense of there's a, a time frame, or are you free, or what? <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm not under contract for another book yet. Um, and I, And that's still an unfolding question. But um, I expect that, however, I write the next book, I will write it in in a shorter time again, probably in three or four years.
0: And maybe is that because if you have, you can you can set more time aside to actually devote to writing. You're not doing all these other. things and yes
2: that that's (laughs) true i can i can put more than 10 minutes a day into it (laughs) although i also am very busy with a lot of other responsibilities still but but it it is very yeah no it's very very helpful i feel fortunate to be able to do that
0: well let's take a short break and maybe we'll talk about some of your responsibilities (laughs) we'll end on a high note when we come back you're listening to the living writers show on wcbn fm ann arbor i'm t hetzel today elizabeth kostova and we'll be back bye-bye
1: you are listening to a rebroadcast of Living Writers. Please join us tonight at 8 p.m. at Work Gallery on State Street, also right here on WCBN-FM 88.3, for a live broadcast of Living Writers uh, featuring Naomi Shihab Nye and uh, host T. Hetzel. Once again, that's 8 o'clock at Work Gallery on State and also right here on WCBN FM.
0: Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today, Elizabeth Kostova. Um, Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And you're, so you're going to be reading this evening um, at Nicola's, uh, 7 p.m., Westgate Mall. Um, and you're in the middle of a tour for the Swan Thieves. So if you guys.
1: This is a rebroadcast of Living Writers. Upcoming events mentioned in this program have already occurred these these tour
0: stops at www.swanthieves.com and more about the novel there too um, and I'd like to say one more thank you to Brian Delaney for engineering and uh, we've got the sports guys coming up, uh, maybe Adam will be in, in the, uh, the sports seat uh, today I wanted to also say thank you to Sabrina Callahan um, for sending me the books over at Little Brown, she's great I don't know if, do you work with her directly? Like yes, I Elizabeth do, yeah. too. Yeah, she's been wonderful. All right, so let's talk about some of your your other um, your other things. Besides the writing, you, you've also started a foundation um, for, for writers, both in America, Britain, and Bulgaria. Could you tell us more about the foundation Elizabeth and why you started it and what's happening with it?
2: Well, it it started because of the historian. When I went to Eastern Europe on tour, I found that I had a a really touchingly big response there because it's very unusual for places like Bulgaria and Croatia, uh, Romania, to be featured in a Western novel. And a lot of writers came to my readings, um, particularly in Bulgaria, and I was really distressed to hear about the way they had the the circumstances under which they worked um it's of course it's you know very hard to be a writer in almost any culture and most people work very very hard um to get published I mean it's or or to just to have time to do their work it's it's part of the trade But in Bulgaria, I met writers who were working three jobs, driving a cab at night, and with really no hope of of winning a fellowship or um, an award or going to an MFA program because those things barely existed. So with the collapse of communism there, a lot of this, uh, although state censorship was mainly removed, a lot of the the structure of funding for the arts also collapsed 20 years ago and not very much was replacing it and the more I saw of, of Bulgarian writers who were trying to publish wonderful novels and short stories uh, poetry um, but were being edged out by waves of books in translation mainly commercial novels and and um, commercial nonfiction from English and um, and uh, f- and which really limits the local market there, and and also in Bulgaria, for example, there were only about four literary prizes, and three out of four were nomination only, in the whole country. So I mean, here, yes, it's a struggle, but we ha- we can submit our chapbooks. We you know there are, there are thousands of prizes, fellowships, um, things to struggle for, <laughs> and hope for, and. Um, and many, many, many MFA programs. Um, The workshop model of discussing writing barely existed there. So I decided that one thing I wanted to do with, with the historian was to use some of the international royalties from the book to give back to... Eastern Europe, which had provided me with so much sustenance and inspiration as a writer. And I started a foundation there, a small foundation, that has since grown much larger um, through generous help from the American Embassy, from the EU, from other foundations. So it's grown into something much much bigger than just me. Um, and it now offers prizes for translations, literary translation. It also hosts an international fiction seminar on the coast of the Black Sea in Bulgaria annually, and we've had several graduates of the MFA program here at the University of Michigan attend that. It's become very competitive. It um, is, um, and we had about 100 applications last year for 10 fellowships. Um, and it's it goes through committee in Bulgarian and in English. So we take we usually have five Bulgarian workshop participants and five from the English speaking world, the English writing world, um, not only the U.S. And um, it's a wonderful opportunity, I think, for writers from the West to go and experience a little known destination, and and also to experience a very vibrant literary scene in a very different world. You know, Bulgaria has an incredible literary tradition, but it's a really small language and um, has a lot of great translators working there, too. So uh, some very interesting projects are already coming out of this seminar, um, collaborations between Bulgarian and American writers, translation projects, publications, um, and uh, it's very—it's really very exciting to see this kind of cultural diplomacy in action. And I'm very proud of what the writers there have accomplished and done to help one another. And um, I'll just add the our website, which is beautiful. And make sure you click on English if you don't read Bulgarian <laughs> um, in the upper right-hand corner. The web address is www.ekf.org. For Elizabeth Kostova Foundation dot bg for Bulgaria, and I invite all all writers. And we we don't even um, have a criterion of publication. We the the juries look at writing samples and their quality. And we've had some extraordinary writers there, published and unpublished.
0: And it's not necessary to know Bulgarian. As a, no, not right. at all. I should say that. <laughs> that would hugely limit our, our application <gasps> or, pool in the West. <laughs> or everyone would have to start you know, boning up on the Bulgarian. Right now, yes. right.
2: exactly. no, no, not at all necessary. In fact, we have an interpreter at the conference who, who helps um, anyone who needs, to, needs help communicate with anyone else.
0: And do you go, are you part of the conference? Because I know you have been in the past, Elizabeth. Is that something that you, yes, you continue I, to do? I do.
2: I go annually and I teach the, or not teach, but... Lead and, and the mediator for the the um, English workshop and a Bulgarian novelist, a different writer every year or short story writer. Um, very, we've had some really wonderful Bulgarian writers leading the Bulgarian equivalent workshop.
0: Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth, do you also write? Because you mentioned that there were other projects that you are working on. Are you are you writing short stories right now, or or what? And because I imagine with the book tour and and with everything um what sort of- writing are you having time to do at the moment, or do you think your method is the novel that's the way you're putting things together and to the the written word Well, I do work mostly on novels now and um
2: Hi, but I recently wrote a short story for a Michigan Anthology of Ghost Stories, and that's <laughs> been a lot of fun. Um, and I sometimes write some—I write short nonfiction um, essays or articles occasionally, or do a little reviewing. But usually, um, I'm I'm working on a, a novel, and I started a new one, a, a, my third novel, in November, and. Um, I'm trying to very slowly to begin the research for that because it will again involve a lot of historical research, and I keep hoping that someday I'll write a novel of two hundred pages that will include almost no historical <laughs> research. <laughs> but I don't seem to be capable of it so far.
0: Well, maybe that could just be um, your idea of a short story if you just looked at that <laughs>
2: two hundred page short story. Yes. Yeah.
0: I don't know to give yourself some sort of I don't know. It is interesting though. I love that idea how um just that thinking about like this is the way this is the way I see the world. This is the way my mind works. Like taking those pieces of of history. Of,
2: of history. Well, um yes, it's it's um I think writers have themes and ways of seeing seeing things that emerge over time and and in a way it's it's exciting to see that one's subject matter sort of emerge and in another way it's a little sad I mean it's um there's a feeling of limitation every mind is so limited and and in spite of the fact that we all use our imaginations uh vigorously when we write novels so I'm I'm also realizing that probably there are certain kinds of novels I will never I, I would never in a million years be able to write and but at least I can read them. <laughs> that, remains, that remains a consolation.
0: And your readers can go along with you on the ride that you're, you're creating for them. Um, thank you, Elizabeth Kostova, for being here in the studio today. Um, Elizabeth's latest, the, the Swan Thieves. Thanks again to Brian Delaney. Thanks for listening to Ann Arbor, streaming wherever you are out there. And until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, January 25th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dory Marina. Coming up, tens of thousands fill Egypt's Tahrir Square on the anniversary of the uprising that drove Hosni Mubarak from power. We'll hear from Egyptians about the progress and setbacks of the revolution and what's ahead. In Southeast Asia, Indonesian fishermen are losing their boats and livelihoods as Australia enforces heavy penalties in disputed waters. And following the president's State of the Union, environmentalists question his plans for domestic energy production, while Republicans try to push forward the controversial Keystone XL pipeline. Those stories and more, but first, this news.
3: I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. U.S. Special Forces have freed two hostages from Somali pirates— The two aid workers with the Danish Refugee Council, one a U.S. citizen, were kidnapped last October while doing landmine removal work. Media reports that SEAL Team 6, the same unit responsible for killing Osama bin Laden, killed at least eight of the kidnappers at their outdoor camp. A Somali pirate told the AP that at the time of the attack, the guards were sleeping after chewing a local narcotic. Salvage efforts continue on the cruise ship Costa Concordia off the Italian coast. So far, 16 bodies have been recovered from the wreckage, and many more passengers are still missing. The New York Times reports that workers have sighted the first contaminant slick on the water surface, but have not yet identified the substance. Officials say oil-capturing booms around the wreck were containing the liquid. The operation to remove fuel from